Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale July 14th, 2021. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Yeah, Tucker! How are those dog days? Is it the dog days of summer? When do the dog days of summer officially begin? That's a good question. Apparently, it's supposed to get super hot out here. I'm sort of in a part of a Los Angeles that doesn't get as hot. But anyway, I don't know. I'm doing fine. Yeah. Just, you know, doing my thing. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Did some fun stuff over the last week. If you haven't seen it, I hosted a live stream with Mr. Ryan Stegman, who we'll be talking about very shortly. But if you are just joining us on the show, we are going to get into all of our favorite comics that came out this week. We're going to give you our picks, and we're going to talk about some new comics. We're going to give out awards. Tucker, you are the official award namer for this show. Mm-hmm. And so we'll be giving out whatever awards you deem fit this week to a bunch of books. Then we'll talk about what's hitting collections and Marvel Unlimited. And we'll get into our reading club interview section. Our guests this week are who, Tucker? Our guests, I am so excited, are Kevin Hines and Will Hines of the Screw It, We're Just Gonna Talk About Comics podcast. I know them as well from the world of improv. These are two of the funniest and most knowledgeable, I think, comics folks we've had on in a little while. So we dig into Fantastic for number 245. So we're going into the back issues bin this week and reading some classic FF. This is going to be a fantastic episode number 158. You know what (laughs) we need to do? Maybe we can find out what other wonderful issues line up with our episode numbers. Because I got to know, what's the best issue 159 in Marvel Comics history? We're going to find out next week. I love it. But for now, let's dive into Aliens Aftermath number one, our first pick of the week. We're celebrating 35 years of Aliens, the sequel, the second movie in the Alien franchise. And this is an official sequel to Aliens. It picks up about 50 years after the events of Aliens. And I, you know, that's plural, Aliens, the second film in the franchise. It is written by Benjamin Percy, art by Dave Wachter, colors by Chris Sotomayor, Letters by VC Zariana Mar, great cover by Phil Noto, some really cool covers. Some of the covers kind of give away a big thing in this issue. Sometimes it's the way it goes, but they introduce a new kind of xenomorph in here. And it's awesome and terrifying, but it follows up on the nephew of one of the soldiers who engages the xenomorphs on Hadley's Hope, the colony from Aliens, Vasquez. Um, who has a bone to pick with Wayland yutani sort of the big evil corporation in the Alien franchise. This character is going to try to, like, reconcile some things, to stick it to Wayland yutani to get some answers. But there are secrets. I think Ben Percy does a great job of doing a good old onion reveal, like pulling off layers as you get through the story. And by the end, you're crying. It's beautiful. Dave Wachter does a great job. Dave Walker recently did the Iron Fist Heart of the Dragon limited series alongside Larry Hama, which we loved. And so I, I was very excited to see Dave's name here, and, and he does a great job. It's very moody, very creepy, very weird. And then when it gets into like full-on like heart-beating tension and horror moments, it moves. It moves real quick. It both is and isn't the big explosive sort of feel that the original Aliens film has. It's a little bit smaller and more personal, but it's also 
very action packed and like frenzied and intense like Alien. So I think it works very well as a a part of the canon. I I dug the crap out of it. It's really really neat. I also want to shout out editor Jake Thomas. He works on the Alien books. He's a huge fan. He knows his stuff. He's like deep involved with like other parts of the Alien franchise people. So he's like what's cool about this is it like it fits in and they're really thinking about how the Alien comics fit in with whatever other things are going on out there. Yeah, I mean that's that's like worth mentioning, I think. The Alien books are tied into Alien continuity the same way that Star Wars books are tied into Star Wars continuity, like which just makes it, you know, all the more special knowing that it fits in. It's all canon. It's all really cool. Hey, you were talking about how this comic really moves along. It gets moving. It goes quick. I think that is probably one of the best ways to describe Spider-Woman number 13. Uh, it's written by Carlo Pacheco with art by Pere Perez, colors by Frank D'Armada and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. This series in general, like, is one of those that somehow it's funny, it's fast paced, it's full of emotion, it's full of heart, and you feel all of those things. You can just, it's like a well-composed dish. You taste all the different elements and they just come together at the same time. As we continue to get to know these characters, certainly the new characters that are involved in this story, the more I learn, the more I care, the more I love it. And then there's also like a graphical element to so many of Carlos' stories where you can just tell that Carlo Pacheco is inspired by the vision of something like, there's this image I have in my head and I want it in my book. Let's do it. Whether that is in this situation, this big hulking goon who has a secret empire back tattoo that is actually very similar to my secret emperor back tattoo or a monster truck that's like driving through the city and Spider-Woman is clinging to the top of it. And it's simultaneously absurd and hilarious and awesome action. It just rules. I love this book. It is continuing to go from success to success. Perry Perez, obviously, we're enormous fans of. And it's really cool in this issue as well to see stuff that's, you know, we know that Perry Perez is a martial artist. We know that Perry is one of the finest fight choreographers out there in terms of putting it on paper. So to see some of the other stranger, weirder, more left field fight and action sequences going on in here and being right there, right inside the action the entire time, just rules. I mean, you know, I gush about this book constantly and there are just so many different elements to love, but 13 is up there with the best of them. Go pick it up. At one point, the big guy with the Secret Empire tattoo, Bruiser, throws a horse at Spider-Woman, yeah. <laughs> which I was yeah. delighted by. I laughed out loud at yeah. that sequence and that panel. It is so good. There's another point where Bruiser gets on one of the ferries leaving Manhattan, and he's just leaning over the ferry because he's got a breather, and he's drinking water. And he goes, mm, boats. And it's just <laughs> such a funny moment and so real. Uh, it's hilarious. God, I love this book so much. And shout out to all the lettering in here, especially the mm. sound effect lettering. There's some sequences where it's like the lettering goes around the figures in here. Like the first page, it just says, oh, baby. And it's <laughs> like so perfect. So I think it's probably a lot of it is Pere. And then some of it is also Travis Lanham. So shout out to everyone. This book is freaking great. It's so awesome. All right. Let us give you our third pick of the week, which is... 
Carnage, Black, White, and Blood. Number four. I think I've said it before. I'm not a big Carnage fan. The murdery thing. Carnage is just a lot of too much for me. But I think what they've done, and shout out to editors Danny Kazem and Devin Lewis, is give great creative teams or creators a chance to just tell some cool stories. And this one is really interesting because you have three stories. You have one by writer Ed Brisson, art by Scott Hepburn, and colors by Andres Mosa, which is like this alternate reality storyline of a future in which the Carnage symbiote is like housed in a little vial and a survivor in this wasteland place finds it and then turns into an evil carnage monster. And of course, Ed Brisson, Canada's favorite son, sets the last like good place on earth in Canada, which I found great. There's a story written by Declan Shalvey with art by Stephen Mooney set in like the taxi driver era New York City. And it's gritty and it's weird and it's twisted and messed up. But the biggest one here for me is the Carnage Beyond story. The first one in the book, it's written by Ryan Stegman, art by Joe Bennett, colors by Mattia Iacono. So you have Ryan Stegman, who had been drawing the Venom comics and really working on the story alongside Donnie Cates for the last couple of years, drew Absolute Carnage, drew King in Black. He gets to stretch his legs and write a story. And then he's paired with artist Joe Bennett, who has been doing career-defining work in Immortal Hulk for the last three or four years. How do you get better than that? Yeah. That's nuts. And they get to tell a story that is great. So it ties into one of the Venom stories, the storyline where Eddie and Dylan go to an alternate reality, and there they meet Dylan's mom, who is sort of, she's got her own Venom armor, and she's one of the last vestiges of humanity fighting against an alternate evil version of Dylan. And it's a cool story. Definitely check it out on Marvel Unlimited if you haven't already. But it ties into that, and it brings in characters from that reality. It's really messed up, and it's twisted, and it's dark, and it's sad as hell. Kudos to Ryan on, on writing the story, and Joe crushing it as always yeah it's so cool all right this we have for our picks this week now we're diving into all the new comics headed your way we're kicking it off with champions number eight and we will be doling out the you'll be pissed if you missed list nominations and awards and my you'll be pissed if you missed goes to in champions there's a A real family identity that I think is emerging in Danny Lore's run on this book. This group of young heroes have been through so much together, and they're sort of always on the back foot. So when you get any chance, like we do in the opening pages of this issue, to see them just like hanging out, to see them being friends, to see them connecting and communicating with each other on a human level... It's really cool. And then as you dive into further into this issue and into the story, what's at stake and the risks and you seeing them working as a group and truly as a team, it one just all makes more sense because you understand what's beneath those connections. And then two, there's just more at stake. You know, you care more. So I really love the investment that's being put into this team by Danny and the rest of the creatives. Yeah. We have Conan the Barbarian number 23 out this week. My pissed if you missed this list (laughs) award, something like that, just goes to the nasty sword, the Tooth of the Night Star that has shown up in this storyline. This is the last part of 
this arc and this sword is like all possessed and evil and it's all twisted. There's a moment in here where someone shows up and is like, nah, that's fine. I don't, that sword's not going to bother me. Peace, Conan. I loved it. I think this was a great capper to this, this storyline. Um, it ends with Conan on a boat. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun, this one. Uh, next up, we have Excalibur number 22. My You'll Be Pissed If You Missed list award goes to how weird this book is. This book <laughs> is so weird. I love it so much. Here, it feels like we're simultaneously in the midst of this grand fantasy epic that has obviously been told, but it also feels like we're starting a new fantasy epic in a new way. And, and, you know, to see the ways that this creative team is having fun with the idea of Excalibur with maybe even certain elements of Arthurian legend is really, really cool. And if you love weird classic style mutant Marvel comics, you must be loving this series. And I certainly am. I, I really, really love the place it holds among not just, you know, the mutant books, but among just any Marvel comic we read on a weekly basis. If you like Alan Moore and Alan Davis, Captain Britain stuff from yeah, like the yeah, UK, yeah, yeah. Yeah. this is this is going to tickle your <laughs> funny bone. Very cool. They're pulling out some, some deep cuts in there. Also, Pete Wisdom, who I love. All right, we've got Extreme Carnage Scream number one out this week. This is the second part of eight of these Extreme Carnage books in the storyline. This is a brutal one. Carnage is back, baby, and he's carnaging up everything. My pissed if you missed this award goes to Andy Benton, the character that was created during the Agent Venom storyline and broader things. And so she's had her ups and downs, and I want to give her a hug. She goes through a lot. She's gone through a lot. She continues to go through a lot, and it's a, a brutal, brutal issue for her and Scream. Very much so. All right, next up we have Iron Man number 10. And my pissed if you missed this list award goes to something that I really enjoy, I think, in the history of Iron Man and in Iron Man sort of canon. It's a, a, a way that across the character's history, different creatives have sort of gotten into the heart of the character is by stripping him down or casting him away, sending him out there. But... I love seeing Tony Stark just cast out on his own, figuring it out. You know, he doesn't have everything at Stark Industries. He's not in New York City. It's just him, maybe one or two allies, and his ingenuity. So seeing that all come together, I think is really, really, you know, always fun as well. I think there's a really cool sort of villainy monster kind of character in this story that I am really into. And then it's all brought to life by Kafu, who's just incredible. Like put Kafu on any book, any character, and I'll be a fan. So getting to read a, a Kafu story is just always a pleasure. Up next is Sinister War number one. This is uh, picking up on a bunch of the threads from Amazing Spider-Man. This dovetails in and out of the last couple of issues of Nick Spencer's Amazing Spider-Man run. This is sort of like the we're getting to the end of his couple years epics of all kinds of stories. We've got Kindred in here. We've got five or six teams of villains all just fighting each other, fighting Spider-Man. I want to give my pissed if you missed this award to Mark freaking Bagley. Legend. Like I think about Mark Bagley 
And my introduction to him was reading him on Amazing Spider-Man in the early 90s. And he was working before that. And he's somehow gotten better, tighter, cleaner, packs more detail into his pages. There's a spread in here with like 40 characters just brawling and fighting. He is as good as you can get. He deserves the legend title. There's a lot happening here. He's able to keep it all clear and straightforward and move you through the storyline. And it's it's a nasty one for Peter Parker. Spider-Man is in a bad way. And he's uh, got a lot on his plate, and it's just going to get tougher for him. Hey, speaking of a lot happening for Peter Parker, there's a lot happening for old Petey in Spider-Man, Spider-Shadow number four. This is like a very, very dramatic series that I'm really, really into, and it really is putting this character to the test. But my pissed if you missed list goes to Pasquale Ferry, who I think just kills it and right there alongside Pasquale, uh, Matt Hollingsworth. I just love his colors. I think they're so vibrant and bold, and I think it just fits this story wonderfully. Uh, It's one of those that I think really stands out in terms of the color work going on. So it's really good stuff. I want to give a shout out too to the Peter Parker and the Mary Jane of this story in this universe. They're clearly those characters, but they are very unique in the way that they look and they feel it's a difficult thing to do. You can easily draw a Peter Parker or a Mary Jane, you get a sense, but like to give them a very specific look that feels like their universe here is well done. It's really cool. Next up, we rock it off to the realm of Star Wars with Star Wars, Dr. Aphra number 12. And this is of course a war of the bounty hunters tie in. I love this issue as I do with, basically every single issue of Dr. Aphra, but this one in particular, because big prequel vibes on this one, there's sort of a like spy undercover mission that Aphra and Son of Staros are on. Uh, and it all kicks off very quickly, but the aesthetics, the way it unfolds really, really brought me back to those prequels, uh, which is some of my favorite stuff in history. So as per usual, pick up Dr. Aphra. And now I'm taking the reins as we head straight over once more to Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters number two. This is, of course, the kind of main ongoing story written by Charles Saul with pencils by Luke Ross. And that's what I want to talk about. Good God. Luke and colorist Niraj Manon crush this issue. It is so, like, uniquely beautiful It looks sort of unlike any Star Wars issue that we've read in a really long time. There's a really wonderful sort of light pastel look to to these colors, almost watercolor look throughout the whole thing. On top of that, the way that Luke draws Boba Fett is unbelievable. There's such a like tangible quality to his Boba Fett that I love so much. And that's not all we have here. We have so much more bounty hunter action, obviously big players, Jabba much has been made about one specific character's involvement. Maybe that we've seen from the movies getting involved here in war of the bounty hunters. I think we'll hold off on talking about that for now. Maybe we'll talk about that next time, but I got to say, this is my favorite issue of any of the war of the bounty hunters issues so far, because it's, I think it's just wonderfully well composed. There's a great like party sequence, which is really fun. And then, yeah, it's just an absolutely gorgeous book to look at. Great Star Wars stuff coming your way uh, on the 14th. 
All right, fine. You got all your Star Wars out of the way. You feel better now? Yeah. Okay, fine. It's time <laughs> to go to Asgard because it is time for Thor number 15. I want to give my pissed if you missed this award to Michele Bandini. Friggin' great guest artist on this issue, but man, crushing it. There's this big battle spread with the Avengers and they're fighting these aliens and it's all nasty. The sense of like drama and action and excitement. To me, this feels like a coming out issue. Uh, I hope a lot more people get their eyes on McLeay's work here. And it also has this great moment where the Avengers are like, we're fighting a bunch of aliens right now. Captain America can't talk to you, Thor. And Thor's just like, I just got to talk to Cap privately. And he like doesn't even pay attention. He's like, oh, oh, all this? Yeah, give me a second. And he just wins the battle in a heartbeat. It's wild. But there's big things happening in the pages of Thor right now with Mjolnir. And it's troubling to the Odinson. It's troubling to Captain America. It's it's just a difficult thing for everybody. And so that's going to have big repercussions as we move forward into the next couple of issues. Totally, totally excited to see that happen. All right, next up we have Way of X number four. And my pissed if you missed list award goes to one character in particular. I will hold off on naming who that is because... You know, this has sort of been billed as the Nightcrawler series, as like an exploration of what happens to the philosophy and thoughts of Kurt when the world changes as much as it has on Krakoa. But there's a character that has a bunch of focus in this issue, and I hope, hope, hope continues to grow in stature in this story, and that's David Holler. I really, really enjoy seeing a character like that Mix it up with a character like Nightcrawler. I think they're so fascinating, a duo. There's some beautiful big spreads in this issue by Bob Quinn, who I think is bringing it. Uh, And the direction we're heading in with Way of X and then with Legion is so cool. I'm really, really excited for it. I think it's really, really cool and a really nice balance. All right. Last book of the week is X-Corp number three. And look, of course, this one is a Jamie Madrox aka the multiple man focused issue. So I am giving my pissed if you missed it award to Layla Miller, who shows up in this issue. I know that's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's really important. All the stuff built around Layla Miller, particularly in Peter David's X Factor run, so good. She showed up in House of M and then she was, you know, used in the pages of X Factor for years. And the groundwork that Peter and other creators laid around Jamie and Layla. It's great. Also, might break your heart a little bit. Hairline fracture of the heart. Yeah, just a hairline (laughs) fracture. Uh, It'll be repaired. Uh, Trust me. Great issue as we delve into the uh, organization that is trying to build the business side of Krakoa, and they're getting into some bad, bad stuff. Teeny's having a blast writing this. You can tell. Yeah, totally. That's what we have for... New floppies heading your way this week. Now we look over towards the collection section. Bunch of stuff this week. We have Marvel Weddings in collection. That's really fun. We also have Ultimates by Al Ewing, the complete collection, as well as Taskmaster, the Rubicon Trigger. That's a story that I've been really, really enjoying. Yeah. Over on Marvel Unlimited, we have the wrap-up of King in Black with... King in Black, Planet of the Symbiotes, number three. I really liked that series of uh, sort of side stories. And King in Black, number five. Big, big one in there. There's tons more, including Runaways, 
Runaways. Read Runaways, everybody. All right, Tucker, where do we go from here? From here, we go right to an issue called Childhood's End. That's Fantastic Four 245, and we are reading that story. So go check it out on Marvel Unlimited as you listen to our chat with Kevin Hines and Will Hines. Joining us today are two gentlemen that I know way better than they know me. From many things, including the Screw It, we're just going to talk about comics podcast. We have Will Hines and Kevin Hines. Thanks for joining us, guys. Woo! Yay for us. Thank you for inviting <laughs> us. This is really fun. Yeah, we're excited. It's weird because you talk about comic books and we talk about comic books. And <laughs> yeah. it felt like such a perfect marriage to bring you all here to talk about some Fantastic Four on this episode. That's right. We're excited. Yeah. And this is a run that I know, I mean, I own it. And I've read a couple of issues here and there, but I don't know this run very well at all. So I was excited for you guys to to bring this to us. So why did you choose this run of Fantastic Four and specifically what issues? I defer to you, Kevin, um, and then I will correct you. Okay, great. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of runs we could have picked. We picked this one because it's something we haven't talked about on our own podcast. And it's also a run that was one of the first runs that Will and I both read Uh, There were definitely comics that one of us read or the other one read. But this was a comic, this Fantastic Forest run by John Byrne when it came out. Other than the first six issues of Fantastic Four, which we had in a digest, I hadn't read any other Fantastic Four. So this is it. It was those six issues and then this run. So really, this John Byrne run is really where I learned to love these characters personally. And 245 is just, I think, one of the best standalone issues in the entire run. So... When I think Fantastic Four, I think this first, honestly, because I read the peak Kirby stuff later when the Essential volumes finally started coming out. Uh, most of that I had not read. I'd never read the first Galactus story. So this was sort of like where my impression of Fantastic Four, this and the Hanna-Barbera cartoon, are where I learned huh. about who the Fantastic Four are. Now, my corrections for that are... <laughs> um, oh, great. I mean, I, I agree with what Kevin says, but I would state it like this. Like, you know, we were kids. Like, I was 13 when this run was coming out, and Kevin was eight. And um, our first great love affair with comics time, you know, when you're like reading everything and just like it's kind of all new to you. And there's something really special about the comics you read when you're in that phase of like first discovering them. And John Byrne's Fantastic Four was it for us. Like, I think it does happen to be a fantastic run that like really holds up. But it also was in this time when we just like loved comics and we shared it as brothers. We would read them together and talk about it. So like it really looms large in our mind. I think the John Byrne run in general, what is great about it to me is like each issue generally was a very contained short story. It was like a good idea for a short. He didn't do a ton of long arcs. He did some, but not very many. It was usually like a one or two parter, like a little Twilight Zone episode, kind of like. And he really tried to pick stories that hit the characters emotionally. It was like, read the big brain has to do something with his heart. Thing has to confront his humanity. The torch has to be responsible or something like that. Like he was really good at like hitting the core of the characters and the villains too. He would do that to the villains. Like he really like would challenge how Dr. Doom was used. Anyway, uh, this particular issue we picked is an invisible girl story. She's not yet 
renamed to Invisible Woman. That happens later. And John Byrne really, like, I think, took it upon himself to redefine Susan Storm. And this issue does a lot of that. So that's another reason we wanted to pick it. We think it's kind of like one of the things that John Byrne was really good at. And the story is just rad. Like, the yeah. issue is just yeah, good. It's a really fun one. Ryan, do you have the, the on-sale date for this? I know it's early 80s. Yes. And I was actually just looking to see what Byrne was doing concurrently, because he was writing and drawing every issue from 232 to 293. So like a 60-issue run, writing and drawing it. So this issue, 245, hit stands May 18th, 1982. And for the first like chunk of the run, he's mostly doing Fantastic Four. But by like the 250s, he's also doing Alpha Flight. He's also doing Thing. He's also like working on random projects here and there. It's bananas what he was doing at the same time while still producing really high quality work that is so well regarded. It was just obviously really personal to him. I think, you know, I have actually have not read a ton of interviews with Byrne about this or really anything, but... It certainly felt personal. It felt like he had a mission. He's like, I'm going to show you guys how I think FF is supposed to be done. And I think he pulled it off. Yeah. Where were you going to go with the the date, Tucker? Well, I was curious about that because, Kevin and Will, I, 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 you guys mentioned the like comics milieu that you had come to this series. And I was curious about the books that you were reading before, if you had gone back already and were had like read old back issues of the early stuff, if you were just reading contemporary comics that were being released, you know, weekly, it, what, what was kind of on the shelf right before this? I have my memory of this, Kevin. What do well, you it's remember? Probably, it's probably better than me. Uh, I don't think I was collecting anything at this time. I was just reading your stuff at this time, probably still. Because uh, the first book I collected, I think was either Marvel Team Up or Incredible Hulk. Those were the first books. And I started getting Marvel Team Up right, like, issue 149. It was almost over. I didn't know that. And then I switched to web. Like, and I think I just wanted to have a book on my pull list. Um, yeah. So I wasn't collecting much. We had those digests. We had the pocket-sized digests of Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Hulk, uh, and then some uh, DC stuff, too. Yeah, this is pretty early for us. Like, we were just starting. Like, this particular issue was a back issue for us. We started reading FF, like, around 260. And... We immediately were buying FF and Spider-Man just because we were familiar with those characters for whatever reason and liked them. And then that was kind of our center. And then we started expanding to like just stuff that had been on TV, basically. We would get like a Hulk issue here or there. It took us a long time to get to X-Men, maybe like a year or two. It, it was FF and Spidey for a year. And then we expanded. We started just becoming Marvel heads. And we would buy like an issue or two of whatever, like Hulk or Iron Man, or uh, we might have bought an issue of Thor in there somewhere. I don't remember. Power Pack we got weirdly into Daredevil. Uh, we also started like reading like comic zines or whatever. Like uh, Amazing Heroes was this mm-hmm. thing that like Fantagraphics put up. So if there was something that was making a splash we would just be curious and pick it up. The guy who ran the comic shop that we went to was this nice guy and he would recommend stuff to us. What do you guys think? What's your impression? Have you, so you've said you only read a couple issues. What do you guys think? Are you like, Oh, we never, this is, this sucks. (laughs) We never wanted to read it. We've always heard it was garbage and whoever liked it was stupid. What are are you guys thinking about this? (laughs) What's your opinion of us? Because we picked this issue. Let's start there. (laughs) Definitely big stinkers. All right. (laughs) 
<laughs> the issue that I've read a number of times, I actually reread it as I was going through this run this time, was 236, Terror in a Tiny Town. Oh, yeah. We almost picked that. I thought you guys might have. Like, when you said 245, it made perfect sense to me. But 236 is also the one. I think Marvel executive editor Tom Brevoort, I think he calls that his favorite Fantastic Four issue outside of Lee and Kirby. It's a really terrific issue. We kind of wanted to go, even though the John Byrne run is not as examined as other things, we still wanted to be a little obscure. I pitched Will like three or four different issues. We also pitched the one where Thing has to walk through Ego. Yeah, planet. that's a great issue. That's a great issue. Just ones that sort of stood out to me as like very memorable stories. And Tiny Town was definitely one of those. And then I skimmed them all. Uh, this was the first one I thought of was 245 because, uh, I don't know, this one had an impact on me. It's very memorable to me. The twist in it really worked for me. Like when I read it, I got blindsided by the twist. Yeah. That might not be true for everyone who reads it, but it really caught me. And it was deeply emotional. It really hit me. Still does. I love this story. I think for someone who's reading it for the first time now, it'll probably hit them in a different way. Given what's happened with Franklin in, you know, especially recent years, that that character has just been totally positioned in a different way. So I feel like it's just a different kind of reveal, maybe. I found it really interesting, too, because I have a a child now and she's 19 months old, but just like that aspect and like when Sue realizes what's going on and when he says mommy I was just like oh man yeah that that's a really well told couple of beats right there when I reread it preparing for this I got to that moment and uh I got sad I got like misty I don't think as a kid I think I was just like oh cool but now yeah. I'm like oh my god that'd be so scary yeah that your child yeah. is like just terrified and this <laughs> has all this power and doesn't know what to do and she's just like, mommy is here, mommy is here. She doesn't know what she's going to do, but she's just like, I'm going to make it better. And it's, ugh, it's really good. It's a lovely moment. So I'll just, I guess I'll just say right now, we're going to give away the big twist. So if for some reason you want to read it without the twist. I think you should stop, go read it on your Marvel Unlimited and then come back and keep listening because it's good, man. It's a good issue. Uh, th- this is a Sue Storm story. She begins. Sue Richards. That's right, because she makes a big point about that. She doesn't mind that being her name. Uh, she starts on this like sort of talk show where a, uh, host is pushing a feminist agenda on her and saying, basically saying all the things that you might say about her character during the Lee Kirby run. Boy, you sure seem to just be a hostage. Probably everything pre-burn. Yeah. Um, you sure seem to just be subservient to your husband and just helping the boys and don't you feel ashamed. And So first, Sue in character stands up for herself. This is why I choose to take my husband's name. This is why this. And she's like confident and assured. It's kind of a fun beginning, kind of a fun little, almost a thesis statement for the character. But then it's demonstrated because she gets back to the Baxter building and it's been taken over by an unknown villain, this tall blonde man who's got huge amount of superpowers and who has easily taken out the other Fantastic Four. And Sue has to battle this enemy on her own. So it's kind of like now she has to demonstrate her independence and her ability. She uses her force field in all these creative ways that shows she's a formidable just power source. Then we find out that this is Franklin, her son, trapped in his own adult body, but still his toddler mind. And she, instead of using superpowers to, she has to be a mom. She has to just like calm him down and reassure him and take care of him. And it's just such a great idea. It's also just a great introduction to the characters and it retells their origin in like a way that feels very organic and explains their powers and it gets into her powers. And it like, you don't need to have read another issue of Fantastic Four to understand this comic. It might not impact you as much if you don't know and love these characters, but everything is explained from their origin on up till that she's a mom to this kid, Franklin. 
And I love the way the origin is told yeah. in this. Because uh, it's on the talk show, right? Like, Yeah, he, the, just the idea that their origin is public knowledge. You know, it's like Spider-Man showed up on the scene. Everyone's like, what's this guy's deal? Yeah. It's like the Fantastic Four happened. Everyone knows how they got their powers. Yes, it is a cool uh, – they, they're like the royal family. The, everybody's intimately familiar with all the details of their lives. Sue is considered one of the five most influential women on the planet, according to this news reporter, which she probably would be. Yeah. According to Barbara Walker. Yeah, Barbara Walker <laughs> knows her knows her stuff. <laughs> I love what a bad guy Barbara Walker is. I love a good villain. And she's such just a mean, manipulative. She's like the journalist in Die Hard, like just a straight up yes. bad guy reporter. It's really <laughs> fun character, though. And, and Sue never takes the bait either. Like, right. Even at the end, she's sort of snippy to Sue. Sue just sort of smiles and walks off. It doesn't impact her at all. Also, weirdly, I read this comic and I was like, oh, I miss thought balloons. They're really well handled in this. They don't feel artificial or strange to me. They don't stand out at all. I mean, a lot of times you read thought balloons in old comics, you're like, I can see why these are gone. These feel really weird and strange. These feel very natural, and I sort of love that. And then uh, there's even a nice little thing at the end, like after the climax of Franklin realizing that this is Franklin, Sue calming him down, reassuring him, okay, threat's over. We just have to figure out how to make him a kid again. There's the reveal with Ben. Like the last three pages is kind of like another big story move. Like Byrne was really aggressive with the mythology of the FF, and I think he made great decisions. I'm glad he was, but man, this is only 20 years removed from Lee and Kirby. He has just taken big swings at the uh, books of the Bible, sort of. You know what I mean? He's really rewriting it. And it's also just fun. Like, everyone looks cool. The powers are fun. Like, the adult Franklin is a really cool character, this weird entity. They don't know who he is. They don't know what his powers are. He's like, answer the question, and, and Johnny's like, I don't know what the question is. I can't. <laughs> how am I supposed to? You're not. You didn't ask anything. And it's like, wow, oh, this is is a really interesting threat they're dealing with. I love the bit where Sue takes the blanket or the, the pants or whatever it is, the coat, and and to stop him because he's been like going through walls and everything. And she like tries to distract him with that, and it does for a second. But then he just turns it into a new coat for himself, and he just yeah. like got this yes. awesome new look. It looked so great. Yeah, it looked great. Yeah, it's so fun. Another one of the many compliments that Byrne had at the FF run, and I will give that same compliment now, is he took what was good about Lee and Kirby and just filled in the gaps where they weren't good. One of the ways that Kirby was, I mean, nobody was better than Kirby at what I'm about to say, which was being creative. How can I use the hero's powers in cool ways, like cool visual things like, you know, the Human Torch found a new way to use his flame for 103 issues straight when Kirby was drawing it. Just every issue, there was some new idea of how the FF could use their powers. Byrne does that with the Invisible Girl here. You know, she throws herself off the building and basically makes a huge cube of a shield that functions sort of like a net that softly breaks her fall. Like, that sort of means she can just fling herself off of buildings and be fine as of that issue. That feels like a real Kirby thing. Just new creative uses of the powers. Yeah, it's great when a creator seems to love the characters already when they come on and aren't like, I'm going to make these characters I like. It's like, no, I love these characters, so I know what I like about them, so I'm going to embrace that and have fun with that. Even when he's fixing the Invisible Woman, it doesn't feel like he's doing that. It just feels like he is adding to what already existed. You know, rather than telling me she's cool, he just does cool stuff with her, and then she is cool. Yeah, I think Sue's cool. I think she's got a cool power set. She's really fun. And it never feels like 
Sue is trying to convince me she's cool. She thinks she's cool. She knows she's cool. But it doesn't, it, it never feels like this comic came out to prove to me anything. It's just like, no, this comic is just, hey, this is a, a fun story to do with her. And here's a fun way to tell it. There's a panel on page five, which really personifies that, in which Barbara's like, I'm sorry, you couldn't feel like you could open up. And she's a total jerk. And Sue's just like rolling her. She's like, whatever. I'm fine. Like, she doesn't feel the need to prove it. It's a great she panel. She looks so cool there. Like she yeah. looks like she doesn't give a crap about what this woman thinks of her. And she's like, I'm fine. You don't want to like me? It's cool. You sort of argue that in the Lee Kirby era, her being a mom and pregnant with Franklin was a liability. She like was taken out of the action for something like 12 issues, like a full year because she was pregnant. There's some logic to that. And some realism that could be cool. But the downside was we lost one of the Fantastic Four from the action for like a year. But in this particular issue, uh, motherhood is a superpower, right? Like it's her motherhood yeah. that saves the day. It's mm. her. She's a mom. She recognizes her son. I mean, right away, she knows the voice is familiar. She's on top of it. It's only because she's being physically chased that you might think she doesn't figure it out earlier. She figures it out. She instantly calms him down. Like the invisibility was great but it was her being a mom that like it's not a liability anymore it is like that's something that she has all the other guys beat on reed doesn't recognize his son reed's yeah. ready to beat the crap out of him i think we'll get into reed in a little bit i have opinions on reed <laughs> <laughs> it's a fascinating analysis of like burn kind of being ahead of his time in terms of certainly how he controls this character how he shapes this character and like the moves that he makes you know one of the big ones was just changing the name from Invisible Girl to Invisible Woman. Yeah. That is something that you could just easily imagine a creator certainly have a certain time not even thinking about, you know? That takes place in Fantastic Four 284 after Sue is mentally tormented by Psycho Man. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, yeah, just changing your name. As a kid, I remember that happening, and I, my reaction was like, okay. And now I look back on it, and it was like, thank goodness he did that, because, like, she's clearly Invisible Woman. That makes so much more sense. Why is every superhero that's a female a girl and every superhero that's a boy called a man? Like Spider-Man was a kid. Yeah, Spider-Man was 16 and the invisible girl has a child and is like 30. <laughs> it's also interesting really thinking about it in the John Byrne context of him then later going on to She-Hulk and just thinking about it in the continuity of our world of like, of course, it makes perfect sense that he could go and write that character. And in hindsight, it's like, yeah, these are two iconic burn stories. But when you look at it as, you know, him doing these in succession or however many years apart, it's, it makes perfect sense looking at it that way, which is cool. I mean, he definitely saw an opportunity, which is that the female characters in the Marvel universe tended to be kind of ignored and neglected. Not always. Outside, outside of the X-Men. Yeah. Outside of the X-Men. And so, like, if you want to make a splash on an existing character, whoever the female character is in the ensemble or in the book, that's the one who's probably not been fleshed out enough. And so, yeah, take the Invisible Woman, make her better. Take She-Hulk and basically define her. Like, John Byrne She-Hulk is the only real She-Hulk that I know. Now, I want to take the spotlight from John Byrne and turn it on you guys real quick for a yeah, second. As it, as it should. Yeah, we should. We deserve it more than John Byrne. <laughs> <laughs> I very cryptically said that I know you guys well as a fan. I say that because I'm going back years throughout my entire college experience and time living in New York. I was a theater rat at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. 
And I've seen both of you perform probably hundreds of times. Oh my gosh. Sorry. <laughs> With that, I'm always curious about the cross-pollination, if one can be defined, between comic book fandom and creative output, between the input of something like this and the later output creatively, comedically. Can you guys quantify that? Can you track the influence? I don't know. There's something about comics, especially when we were kids, where they were a lot more, even though we didn't dispose of them, they felt like more disposable. You got a new adventure every month, forever, good and bad and ugly. There's something about that just kind of like just trying stuff and going forward that I think is part of what like comedy is. It's just like to be like a good performer, especially when we did when we did improv, it's like you have to not worry about like, oh, is this going to be good or bad? It's like, I don't know. I got to do something right now. And there's something about that with comics is like you got to get an issue out. It's been a month. So it's here we go. And so there's some aspect to that that. You know, television has some of that and movies has less of it. And it's like the longer the gestation period for anything, the less that goes away. And you hear that with comic creators talking about sometimes where it's like you don't have time to perfect every comic book script and it'll be out. and You'll see if people like it or not much quicker than it with television and television writers say the same thing about television versus movies. Right. It's like the nice thing about TV is you get a response in four or five months. Where movies, it takes two years to know if anyone liked your product. And if it's bad, too late. So comics has a much more symbiotic relationship with its readers, whether or not they listen to them or not. Like you you put out something like Will and I are covering Superior Spider-Man right now. And it's like, oh, that got this very visceral reaction right away. And so they knew it was hitting something right away. Like it's like, oh, everyone's flipping out about this (laughs) series. We know that in like a couple months. That has to affect how you're writing it, even if you're not going to say, well, now we're going to undo this or redo this or change our results. It affects you in a way that like being on stage and hearing an audience laugh or not laugh affects you. Even if like, you know, what I'm doing is good and they're not laughing, well, that's going to affect you. So that aspect is definitely there. Also, comics has the ability to have no limitations beyond like the artist's talents, I guess. (laughs) I have a different theory on how they're... Uh, I'm wrong. Got it. No, I think fair. you're wrong. I think you mm-hmm. are wrong. I think you messed up, and I'm going to fair correct enough. you. Thanks for letting me go first. Yep. Easier to go second and be better. No, but I just have a different... I agree with you. But there's another aspect, I think, the way that comics are inspiring. Marvel comics in particular. It's like basically the myth of the Marvel bullpen. It's not totally a myth, but like when you're a kid like and you're reading Marvel comics, like Marvel is presented to you as an interconnected family because of the bullpen bulletins and the like, you know, you believe, however true it is or it isn't, that like John Byrne is sitting in one office and Frank Miller is sitting in another and Jim Shooter's walking through and talking to them. You believe that you are tied into an ensemble of talent and even the heroes being interconnected. It's an ensemble of heroes. You are enjoying the product, the comic books, but you also are enjoying the behind-the-scenes story as much as you understand it. Who's a good editor? Like, why do we care at all about Jim Shooter? But we do because, like, we're invested in this idea. So I think when we became performers, I don't think we would have become performers in a non-tribal setting. Like, we did improv. It was at the UCB Theater in New York. It's an ensemble There's the scenes happening on stage, but there's also the the behind-the-scenes. Who's getting on what team? What student is rising through the ranks? Who's a teacher? 
like I think we connected to UCB just as we had connected to the Marvel bullpen. And it's like exciting to feel like you're part of a family tree of some kind. For me and Kevin, being part of the UCB and the aughts was like getting to be part of Marvel Comics in the 60s, you know? I know a lot of my sense of humor and my love of a lot of things comes from my love of weird Marvel stuff that I read growing up. And I think Marvel has a lot of great weird stuff in its catalog and its history and embraces it. And I think that sort of plays into a lot of the comedy that a lot of other comedians have put forth. And I think that to just from an outsider perspective in terms of comedians, that's something I see. On the opposite side of that also, it's like, and this is more maybe just general storytelling, but it's definitely true of Marvel Comics where uh, like, it's like, oh yeah, the adventures are great. It's fun watching Spider-Man fight the vulture, but there's also the grounded human element that we can all relate to, even if we're not thinking about it. The idea that it's like, well, he's fighting the vulture, but also it's like he missed out on a date because of this and it's a drag and he can't really explain it afterwards. And it's just like, well, that's just his bad luck and he's just got to live with it. And Mm -hmm. We all feel that even if we don't know what it's like to fight the vulture, that part is super important. I think that's now in all good comics and it's in movies and TV, like, but it's not in everything. And it's definitely something that hit me. It's there with, even if you don't realize it, it's like, you might think you care about the superhero fights, but you wouldn't care about those as much if it wasn't for somebody worrying about their job or paying rent or something like that. Or just even like in the Fantastic Four, it's like, oh, they're fighting right now. They're, they're not getting along and they got to put that aside. Right. You had a point about Mr. Fantastic that oh, you wanted right. to touch oh, yeah, on yeah, yeah. this issue. He's you love him d- and you think he's a perfect character? Okay, yeah. <laughs> he, is, he certainly was a d- in the Lee Kirby. I yeah, mean, like. and that, that sort of formed a lot of my opinion of him. And, and I wanted to ask the two of you, because you are fans of this run, we talked a lot about how they worked on the character of Sue Storm, Sue Richards. Did they tackle that sort of aspect of Reed? And I always thought he was just such a jerk, especially to Sue. It always yes. pissed me off. I and totally I, agree. I just ridiculously hold a grudge against him because of the characterization. And so I, I like, I'm just not a big Reed Richards fan. W- what is he like in this run? I feel like he probably gets the least mm, amount yeah. of work done. I think to some extent, Sue got the most because. There was the most you could do, and then the thing got the next most because he's like the most fun. Uh, Johnny, I probably got the least, honestly. I don't know if Johnny. No, Johnny got-, got a couple. Johnny dated yeah. Alicia. He like he gives Johnny more responsibility and more grown upness. I do think he just sort of treats Reed like a character with more empathy. He's a little more absent-minded professor and a little yes. less he-man, get out of my way, you idiots, I'll take care of this, which is how Lee sort of wrote him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, especially after when he bulks up in the, the Lee Kirby run, he sort of becomes like this he-man, even to the point where like when any character does anything, there's like a word balloon, someone saying like, Reed told me how to do this. <laughs> yeah, Stan was going out of the way to make Reed the orders giver. Sometimes when you have a smart character, like everyone feels like they've got to like, he's like a strategic genius and everyone who can fight in the Avengers was trained by Captain America. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. But also these characters, like yeah. Johnny knows his powers better than anyone, right? He doesn't need Reed to tell him what to do. And Sue for sure doesn't need Reed to tell him what to do. I think that stuff just going away helps the character a lot. <laughs> right. He's not so actively a complete dick in the burn run. So that is an upside. He is more just like absent-minded professor. I think Reed does not come off. I don't think if you read this run, Reed comes off looking like a jerk. Yeah. 
And sometimes that character comes back. I think a little bit during Hickman's run, he felt like a little bit of a jerk because Hickman steered much into uh, so much into the super genius side of it. Where Wade, I think, didn't do that as much. I think it comes and goes. And I think it's unfortunately baked in from those Kirby Lee years that it's really hard to shake. Reed's a hard one. Reed's a hard character to make good. Yeah. Yeah. But like even in this one issue we just read, like at the end, like when Reed realizes it's Franklin and then also talks to Franklin about the thing, like Reed doesn't talk about that stuff as clinically and as coldly as he did in the eras prior to this. He he talks about it like sad. Uh, uh, it isn't like this melodramatic like thing. It is like, oh, poor, poor Ben. What are we going to do? But I think Ryan's right. It's more the absence of being a complete jerk and not so much like actively being a great character that you root for. He still comes up short in this. I mean, there is the panel on this issue where he recognizes that Franklin's, the caption is something like, Reed suddenly sees his own face from 20 years before. Like he sees his own face in Franklin's. That's uh, a bit fatherly. It's better than like, out of the way, female. The men have a plan to execute. <laughs> that dynamic and that aspect of his character actually feeds into part of why the FF is so good and the dynamics and the back and forth and, you know, Reed and, and Ben or Reed and Johnny, Reed and Sue, they all bounce off each other. It makes for good drama and good stories. That 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 leads me then to, I'm curious what you guys, we come towards the close of our chat. I'm curious what... If anything, you guys are reading today. What new comics you guys are checking out? I remember Kevin I, has I, never stopped reading comics since we started back in the John Byrne time. He truly has one of the most wow. encyclopedic. Uh, I mean, Ryan, you could probably give him a good run for his money. I'll fight you, Kevin. <laughs> but uh, he's got a pre—he's got a pretty good breadth of knowledge of all comics and certainly Marvel comics. I didn't take the generally required like college break from comics. I just—I still kept a couple toes in, so. Uh, Immortal Hulk is uh, uh, it's fantastic. I'm reading anything Brubaker does, uh, all that criminal stuff, I mean, his reckless books. I just got the second one in the mail. I'm very excited to sit down and read that at some point. Tom Taylor, if he writes something, I'm generally pretty interested in it. His uh, uh, Nightwing run is really good right now. His Wolverine run was really good. Uh, what else? Uh, uh, I just uh, read, uh, what is it? The Many Deaths of Lila Starr. I read the first issue of that. And that was really, really that's boom. That's really good first issue. I'm excited to, uh, I think the second issue just came out. I have not read that yet. So that was really exciting uh, first issue. Matt Kint, anything he does, I'm very excited about. So I don't know. I, I, I read a ton. Uh, I don't necessarily know what my favorite thing is right now. <laughs> I have not read anything recently. I read Immortal Hulk, the first like eight or nine issues at Kevin's behest for our podcast. Was completely blown away. Felt like an idiot that I hadn't read it earlier, which I do all the time when I take forever to get to something. Like right away, it was so good. My next thing that I want to read is the, I'm behind on this too, but all the House of X stuff. I Oof, yeah. I haven't read any of that. So I got to yeah. like dive into that. That'd be that'd be good. I would suggest, uh, particularly just after talking with you guys, the current Heroes Reborn story that's going yes. on at Marvel. Um, it's just so much fun, and it it's a, like a love letter to the sort of weirdness of comics and the the history of comics in a very condensed package. Yeah, it feels like a almost amal. It feels like fun. Like I really love the amalgam comics when those had come out. Uh, I don't know whether those were popular and not with fans, but I love those. Amalgam? Those are so yeah, blessed. I think so. I think so. Well, uh, you know what? To bring it full circle, having gotten to know you guys a little bit here today, I'm glad you're not Reed Richards types. You are <laughs> a 
Ben Grimm's more? I guess. Are we, Kevin? <laughs> we're more Bruce Banner's. <laughs> we're we're milksops, right? Well, uh, we're definitely milksops. Yeah. yeah, I guess we're Bruce Banner without the Hulk. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you both so much for talking to us today. You guys really know your stuff, and it is such a pleasure. Thank you for just uh, saying screw it and coming here <laughs> to talk about comics. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. It's a thrill. Thank you once again to Kevin and Will. Two guys who really know their stuff. And I really, really enjoyed that bigger conversation about Sue Storm. I think that's obviously such a monumental issue for that character. And it's really, really fun to dig into, I think, one of the foundational stories of like this character that we all know and love so much. Really, really cool. Yeah. Little teaser. We're going to be talking about more Fantastic Four of that era in, I don't know, probably a couple weeks, maybe a month, give or take. We shall see. All right, that wraps it up for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bacala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And, you know, Brad is so excited about Sinister War, he's been gathering his own team, the Sinister Brads. And they get <laughs> together at the, uh, the little coffee shop in uh, Nyack, New York, Every Thursday, they have their crumpets, they have their lattes, and they talk about all the sinister stuff they're going to get into. <laughs> Just a bunch of dudes a named bunch of Brad. Brad. A bunch of Brads <laughs> getting together, being all sinister. It's really great. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe. Your universe.